This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I am Georgia. I am, I am an example and an iteration of its history. That's the voice of Senator Raphael Warnock, who on Tuesday was re-elected by the people of Georgia in a Senate runoff election. It means he's safe in his seat for the next six years. He defeated the flawed but widely backed Republican candidate Herschel Walker. There's now just one more Democrat in the Senate than there was before, but for a whole variety of reasons, this could be hugely significant. With the Republicans in control of the House of Representatives, Joe Biden will need all the power he can get in the upper chamber of Congress. So how is he likely to use it? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. No, it definitely, um, it definitely kept me busy. Um, although I do keep reminding myself that um, this uh, period between the uh, general election and the runoff in Georgia is shortened from the analogous period uh, uh, after the 2020 election. There, there were- Molly Reynolds is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, which is a nonprofit public policy organization in Washington, D.C., the way our, the Senate works is that a third of the Senate is up every two years. There are staggered terms for the Senate's 100 members. What can throw that off is, um, as happened in, in Georgia uh, two years ago, when there is a senator who either resigns in the middle of a term or passes away in the middle of a term, then there can be situations where there's a special election um, to fill out the balance of someone's term at the same time as a, an election for the other seat. So that's how we ended up up uh, two years ago with two runoffs in Georgia. And then uh, Senator Warnock was up for election to a full term. And that's what the runoff that happened this week was for. And what 2021 showed was how absolutely important these runoffs can be, because in that case, the control of the Senate was on the line in that Georgia runoff. I just want to make it official right now. CNN can now project that the Democrats uh, will be the majority in the uh, U.S. Senate. Uh, John Ossoff, the Democratic candidate in Georgia, he is defeating David Perdue. Absolutely. Um, uh, So we've just gotten through a period of two years in the U.S. Senate with 
Senate control as closely divided as humanly possible, you know, 50 um, either Democrats or folks who caucus with the Democrats, 50 Republicans under the Constitution. The vice president is available to break ties if there's a tie um, on a matter in the Senate that's given the Democrats an effective majority uh, in the Senate. But we've seen sort of the consequences, and I think we'll talk about this later, of having that very closely divided 50-50 Senate. And so now going into next year, Democrats will um, have, you know, one more, we'll have 51 um, uh, rather than just 50. And there are uh, real sort of consequences to that. So the stakes were not quite as high this time. The Democrats were going to be in charge of the Senate one way or the other, whichever way Georgia would have broken. But that did just to talk about the Georgia contest itself for a second, that it didn't mean that, uh, you know, either the nation's media or Republicans or Democrats sort of switched off. They didn't put their feet up and decide, look, this doesn't matter. They put in a lot of campaigning effort to win this seat. Absolutely. I mean, if we look at, for instance, spending on um, advertising during the runoff, Democrats spent more than twice what Republicans did on ads. And, you know, on both sides, those numbers were very big. And it's just that the Democratic one was twice as big as the Republican one. This is important because we have some political science research that suggests that ad spending is more consequential the farther down the ballot you are. So in presidential contests, we think that ad spending probably doesn't actually matter that much for affecting the outcome, but it can be really consequential in Senate races. And so um, obviously that was a lot of resources that were um, that were put into the race. We saw that turnout in the, uh, the runoff was 90% of what it was on election day and before in, in November for the, for the general election. And yes, like US voter turnout figures uh, pale in comparison to um, ones in lots of other places around the world, but getting folks to participate a second time uh, within about a month and, and sort of turning out about 90% of those levels again uh, is, is pretty impressive. I, I would agree. I think I was one of those people who thought, well, look, now that it's not actually about controlling the Senate, it's not like almost a referendum on who should control the Senate, where the whole country is holding its breath watching what Georgia does. Now that it's not that anymore, partly because the Democrats won a seat that you know had previously been Republican in the form of Pennsylvania with John Fetterman winning there, I assumed that actually turnout would drop through the floor because people would think... Well, you know, we can't we can't get us out to vote again just four weeks after we did it last time. But as you say, the turnout held up. And on the Republican side, I mean, you've mentioned how Democrats spent big money. Democrat Republicans did as well. But Republicans did deploy their big names for Herschel Walker. You know, if you were a recipient, as I was, uh, of, uh, like most journalists of these press emails, you know, they're sent in the name of, yes, the candidate, but also some of the Republicans' biggest names, Ron DeSantis, uh, former UN ambassador Nikki Haley and others. It suggested that Republicans were pretty all in themselves for this. What, what did they feel was on the line for them, given that they couldn't win back control of the Senate? Why did this contest matter for Republicans? I think for Republicans, you know, there is just a lot of interest in making it easier to obstruct what Democrats want to do. And so having one additional Republican um, in the Senate um, would allow them to do that. But I think it's also worth noting that uh, Raphael Warnock was a, a especially strong candidate. If you look back two years ago um, to the, the 2020 election when he was on the ballot for the first time, he actually ran ahead of even the other Democratic Senate candidate running for the other seat, um, his colleague John Ossoff. So I think 
think that a lot of this is also just about, you know, Warnock is a real rising star in the party um, and is has a compelling um, personal story, really like charted a path for himself um, already in his first two years in the Senate. And so it's not just, you know, generically wanting one more Republican in the Senate. I think it's partly that, but also I think there is this idea that, you know, Republicans are, are concerned about the possibility that Warnock is going to, you know, be successful in the Senate in for a long period of time. And even there's some talk that he could be, you never know, a future presidential candidate. There are some Democrats who think he is ex- exactly the kind of person that Democrats need to have as their face, that partly, you know, he's a pastor, he's a religious figure. You know, there are cons- socially conservative Americans who might warm to that kind of Democrat. He's one in a difficult state. He's got a national profile now because he's been at the center of not one, but two of these hugely watched runoffs. Are you hearing some of that chatter? Yeah, it's certainly accelerated um, since uh, since the the race was um, was called for him, and I think everything you just recounted about his possible strengths are absolutely right. And you've seen him in his his two years in the Senate so far, really trying to make a name for himself on some issues that are really important to everyday Americans. So, you know, earlier um, earlier this year when the the Senate was debating. President Biden's large energy and climate and healthcare package um, in in August, Warnock was really the sort of out in front in terms of trying to get that legislation to include caps on how much Americans have to pay for insulin to treat diabetes. For the sake of, of folks who deal with this every day, and for the sake of getting costs under control, we need to do this now. I think that's a really good example of, you know, he's really come out as a leading voice on some of these kind of kitchen table issues, um, as we sometimes call them. Just before we leave this very particular Georgia contest, we should say something about the manner of it ending. In the weeks leading up to the midterms, on this podcast and in many places, we aired the concern people had that democracy itself was on the line in the sense there there were a whole lot of candidates, many of them hand-picked by Donald Trump, who not only doubted and cast as illegitimate the result of the 2020 election, but also signalled that they might not accept the verdict this time around if it didn't go their way. Carrie Lake looking to be governor of Arizona made noises in that direction. And there were others too. Herschel Walker conceded this race. Remember, Donald Trump has never conceded the 2020 race. He conceded it and he conceded it in some quite striking language. Let's just hear that. I don't want any of you to stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop believing in America. I want you to believe in America and continue to believe in the Constitution and believe in our elected officials most of all. Herschel Walker going out of his way, first of all, to say that he believes in the Constitution. This is just a matter of days after Donald Trump appeared to suggest suspending the Constitution in order to, as he sees it, right the wrong of him being ejected from the presidency in 2020, but also saying, and I believe in our elected officials. And that would have to include the people who count the votes, uh, the various election officials. Does that sound to you like a rebuke by Herschel Walker of his political sponsor and patron, Donald Trump, and perhaps even a signal that Herschel Walker would like to be acceptable as a future candidate, even in a post-Trump Republican Party. Yeah, I'm not sure it goes as far as to say it 
sort of a rebuke of former President Trump. And I do think it's worth mentioning that, you know, we're talking about a very low bar here for um, Herschel Walker. Uh, We used to sort of take this for granted as a feature of um, American politics that losers would concede gracefully. What I I do think it um, should remind us of is that we'll never know sort of exactly how much various factors contributed to the overall outcomes of the midterm elections um, in the United States. But when we think about the degree to which Democrats generally performed better than many um, many folks were anticipating. I think one factor we should keep in mind is that I think it's a little bit of pushback against some of these the most extreme election denialism that we have seen over the past two years, um, and the idea that you know even in this moment, many many Americans are really uncomfortable with the idea that prominent Republicans are peddling the big lie, saying that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, And I think we've seen that in the way that um, a lot of Republican candidates, even ones who are very conservative and have very conservative policy views, have reacted to their losses um, in the election this year. Your use of the word loser there means that a little part of Donald Trump's soul just shriveled and died, I think, as you were speaking, uh, just because he cannot have the L word ever mentioned in proximity to him. Let's move on, though, Molly, to this question of 51 rather than 50. It sounds like a very small difference, but politically, even procedurally, it can make a huge difference. So just walk us through what it means for the Democrats that they have one more senator in their ranks. What does that difference arithmetically between 51 and 50 enable them to do in the Senate that they couldn't have done before? Sure. So I think it's important to start by reminding folks that even now at 51, because Republicans will control the House of Representatives, um, we should not expect the next two years to be enormously legislatively productive um, in in the U.S. Congress. That said, um, there are a number of ways that having actual majority, um, a true majority, 51 instead of 50, will matter for um, Democrats in the Senate. And maybe I'll start with the procedural aspect. So one is that it will become easier to process nominations. So one of the Senate's responsibilities is to provide advice and consent on the president's nominations to the federal courts, so both lower courts and to the Supreme Court, and then also to um, executive branch positions, so cabinet secretaries and other high-ranking positions at federal agencies. So if the Senate Judiciary Committee is tied on whether to send a judicial nomination to the full Senate for consideration, there are procedures that have been in place for the past two years that the Senate can use to kind of claw that nomination out of committee and onto the floor on a simple majority basis. But those are timely to use. Um, and floor time is quite precious in the Senate. So on, on nominations um, and uh, to the courts and to executive branch appointments, sort of one of the hurdles they've had to jump through over the past two years will be um, eliminated. I mean, all this matters because there is always this race, and it's particularly accelerated in recent years, to a president of one party or another to to drive through as many nominations as they can. Uh, The Biden era has been amazingly accelerated. I think there have been, the Senate has confirmed, 84 judges that Joe Biden nominated, uh, including, and we talked about her on this program, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court, but at, at a lower level, appeals court and lower. He's been doing it at a faster rate than 
President Donald Trump did. Uh, and Trump was, um, you know, doing it at a fair old clip, getting through those appointments. So you, it does suggest there's going to be this sort of, this may be the new normal, that there's this sort of rapid scramble kind of supermarket sweep when you've got a president in there with a party controlling the Senate. They just gallop round, bagging as many judgeships as they can while they can for fear of losing control at the next election cycle. I think that's right. Um, I think that's um, accurately describes kind of what we've seen over the past at least decade, um, if not longer, um, in in the U.S. And I think this is in part a reflection of the growing power of the federal courts in the U.S. political system. So, in an era where we have very polarized legislative parties and it is difficult for the parties to work together um, in Congress, that's sort of enhanced the power of the federal courts and as a result made a given party more interested in trying to fill as many of those available seats as possible when it does control both the presidency and the Senate. I wonder if there'll be any feeling among Democrats that, look, we've, we, we currently hold the cards. We've got Biden there. We've got 51 in the Senate. The Senate map looks really bad for 2024. So even if Joe Biden or another Democrat wins election or re-election, uh, it's possible Democrats could lose the Senate. I just wonder if anybody's thinking, as they did when, you know, we were, and we talked about it here on, on when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, you know, old and people were worried that there would be a change in the presidency. Uh, there is similarly, uh, with Stephen Breyer, again, a liberal appointed judge, pressure on him to step down while Joe Biden could at least nominate his replacement and the Senate would be in place to ensure Biden got his way. Is anybody talking about the liberals that are now on the uh, Supreme Court, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan? They're fine now. They're in good health. Everyone's happy to have them there. But I wonder if there are any Democrats thinking, you know what, we've got 51 in the Senate, we've got Biden, we may not have the these stars aligned in the same way in a couple of years' time. And if anything, heaven forbid what happened to those two, well, who knows, it may be impossible for a Democrat to replace them with a similarly liberal-minded judge. Are you hearing any talk of that, that, you know, this is a rare moment, this 51-seat majority, and Democrats might need to sort of reshuffle the pack to make sure they get the most out of it? Yeah, I mean, I've heard a little bit of that um, of that talk bubble up really since the election. I expect that we may well see more of it um, as we get closer to um, to 2024. Justice Kagan um, is in her early 60s. Justice Sotomayor is a little bit older than that. It wouldn't surprise me if there are some folks who are start to advocate for one of them to um, to retire while Joe Biden is still in office and the the uh, Democrats still control the Senate. So that we've talked about the judges. The other big thing that is affected by having 51, besides the ability to get these uh, appointments through more swiftly, is in the committees. And committees are hugely important in Congress, both chambers, House and Senate. Just walk us through what difference it makes to have 51 and why these committees could particularly matter now in the coming two year period. So in addition to the fact that committees process nominations, as we've just been talking about, so the Judiciary Committee processing judges, but the other um, committees in the Senate process nominations for cabinet secretaries, appointments to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, that sort of thing. So having a um, an outright majority on those committees will make it easier for those committees to do their work. Um, it's also the case that it'll make it easier for committees to um, issue subpoenas 
for the last two years, if a Senate committee wanted to issue a subpoena, it would have to be on a bipartisan basis. Um, now, with outright majorities in the committees, they could issue subpoenas if they wanted to, um, using only votes from Democrats. Now, whether uh, they choose to use that particular tool to do investigations, I don't know. We know from watching the past several years in particular that Congress can issue subpoenas. They often get litigated in court over whether the individual will actually comply with the with the subpoena. But that's another um, another piece on the procedural side that's really important to think about when we think about the difference between 50 and 51. So long-time listeners to this podcast will have developed an almost obsessive interest in two individuals in particular, because we've talked about them so much, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, moderate or even conservative Democrats whose votes you couldn't really rely on if you were a Democratic head counter, very often not there for Joe Biden's agenda or for what or for policies that the rest of the Democrats uh, agreed on. They were all important when you only had 50. Does the power, the leverage those two have now reduce by this increase of one? And if so, in a way, which of the two is the one who loses their leverage? Or does it just not work like that? Yeah, so I think it is true um, that having 51 as opposed to 50 um, does give Democrats a little bit more flexibility to have one of their members oppose, um, again, particularly given nomination. Um, I think we've probably seen a couple more examples where Senator Manchin has been the holdout on a nomination than Senator Sinema, but it can really vary based on kind of what nominee we're talking about. And I think there are times over the past two years where the senator who's been a holdout on a, on a nominee has not always been one of the two of them. Um, and so they this will give Democrats a little bit more breathing room um, in, in that sense. And frankly, it will give them more breathing room in situations where a senator is necessarily absent. So Chris Murphy, Democrat uh, senator from Connecticut, tested positive for COVID last week and so has been, has been absent. And so we know that that happens. We know there are lots of reasons why a single senator might need to be um, elsewhere. And having, again, that 51st vote can help in those situations beyond just situations where someone in the, in the caucus actually opposes a nominee. I suppose also it just means that Manchin and Cinema only have leverage if they're both on side together or offside together or if they or if they have some other senator um, who they in the democratic caucus who they've also recruited to agree with them yeah so overall it does mean that joe biden and the senate majority leader chuck schumer can breathe just that little bit more easily just before we all get too excited i mean democrats have done very well to get to 51 but to really drive their agenda through they not only have to have the house that really helps but also Actually, under Senate rules with the so-called filibuster, you need 60, a supermajority of 60. They are miles away from that, nine seats off that. And I suppose there's, I mean, we talked about it here in the early days of the Biden administration. There's next to no talk of even these 51 senators clubbing together, joining together to abolish the filibuster, change the rules and actually make it possible to govern with just 51 seats. Right. I think we would be seeing we'd be seeing much more conversation about abolishing the filibuster um, if Democrats still held the House. Um, there's no there's absolutely no reason to do it because, you know, anything that you would want to get through the Senate on a simple majority basis if you abolish the filibuster um, will not get through a Republican controlled House. So there's um, there's no political reason to do it now. You know, we'll 
we'll see a resurgence of those conversations the next time one party, either the Democrats or the Republicans, enjoys unified party control of Washington. But I think for now, we'll, uh, we won't be talking nearly as much about that as we have been for the past two years. Molly, we do always like to ask our guests on the show a what else question, something completely different. In this case, obviously a bit related, but there has been oral argument in the case of Moore versus Harper at the Supreme Court. And lots of people are saying, you know, don't be put off by some of the apparently nerdy details here. Something really fundamental for American democracy is to be decided potentially by these nine judges of the Supreme Court. Just to explain to us what, what's at stake, what the, what the case is, and why it's so important. It involves the fact that in the United States, after the decennial census that we take every 10 years, uh, states have to redistrict. Um, they have to redraw their legislative maps. Uh, they must do that for um, both uh, districts that send folks to the U.S. Congress and also for their own state legislatures. Um, in North Carolina, the North Carolina legislature drew a set of maps for its congressional districts. Those maps were taken to court. Um, There's a group of voters who sued um, to say that that map privileged Republicans. It was a partisan gerrymander. And then it was unfair. It diluted the power of Democratic voters. And so the North Carolina state Supreme Court agreed and said that under the North Carolina state constitution, the map was unconstitutional. The North Carolina legislature appealed that decision um, to the Supreme Court under this argument that the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures a particular role in federal elections, which really limits the ability of state courts to step in and, and draw lines. It could have, depending on how the court decides, pretty pretty far-reaching consequences. I think there's a lot of debate over exactly how far-reaching those consequences are. But one thing that we could um, end up with is the possibility of sort of different rules for adjudicating um, state elections and federal elections. And also because if we think back to the aftermath of the 2020 election, we know that one of the avenues that President Trump and some of his allies tried to interfere with the outcome of that election was by trying to use the state legislatures in the individual states in places like Pennsylvania to change the results of the allocation of electoral college votes in those states. And so I think that's all kind of why we've been paying a lot of attention to this, this case. And uh, I will just have to see sort of where the court comes down on it. Yeah, that's the fear that people have had is you could have a situation where the voters of, say, Wisconsin vote for Joe Biden, but the Republican-controlled legislature of Wisconsin says, you know what, we're going to choose people to go to the Electoral College who favour Donald Trump. And if this Supreme Court case goes the way that some people want it to go, there would be nothing anybody could do about that. So it's a huge uh, question that is to be decided by the court with far-reaching consequences for democracy. Molly Reynolds, thanks so much for explaining that and for talking to me for today's Politics Weekly America. Thanks for having me. And that is all from me for this week. If you haven't listened already, can I strongly recommend last week's episode of this podcast hosted by my colleague Joni Grieve. To mark 10 years since the Sandy Hook school shooting, she went to Newtown, Connecticut to speak there with parents of victims, activists and politicians, all of them trying to make the movement for gun safety stronger. It's a really great listen. 
For anyone looking for other stuff to listen to, The Guardian has you covered with something for pretty well everyone. In her new podcast, Shante Joseph questions everything from racism in British comedy to why Matt Hancock chose Bush Tucker trials over constituency meetings by signing up to I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And we now learn quitting the House of Commons. All that and much more. Just look for Pop Culture with Shante Joseph wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, if you haven't been able to keep up with the World Cup, Max Rushton and co are ready to analyse every moment of every match, as well as the news creating headlines off the pitch. So catch up with it all on The Guardian's Football Weekly. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, and the executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.